Okay, so good afternoon. Just like Dr. Ehler said, uh, my name is Christian Lopez, uh, one of the first year fellows. And today we're going to be talking about neglected gram positive bacilli. And I actually put this picture here for a reason, right? Because usually um, there's a lot of organisms who we usually think, oh, yeah, it's a contaminant. We don't really think much about it. But that's why I wanted to give this lecture, because sometimes we neglect this, uh, this children of ours as infectious disease specialists, and sometimes we have to give them a little bit of love. So as you can see over there, popping up, gram-positive uh, gram bacilli over there. So don't neglect them. So let's start this by talking a little bit a bit about them. Uh, usually when we think about gram-positive bacilli slash rods, right? Uh, we usually think about the subdivision, about you know if they have the ability to make spores or not. Usually we think about Bacillus and Clostridia as the spore forming, while we think about Listeria and Corinobacterium as the ones who do not. And they also have the branching filament rods like Nocardia and Actinomyces. So these are the people who we, uh, you know, the organisms that we usually think about. We usually think about the uh, Corinobacterium diphtheria, as you all well know, the gram-positive club-shaped rod that usually causes pseudomembranous pharyngitis, myocarditis, and arrhythmias, but we're not going to talk about that one. Then we have uh, the Clostridia, which we usually think about uh, Clostridium botulism, perfringens, and of course our good old friend uh, Clostridoides uh, difficile, but we're not going to talk about them either. Uh, we also have uh, our Bacillus, right? And we usually think about Bacillus anthrax and Bacillus cereus, right? And usually we think about uh, uh, Bacillus anthrax as the uh, the anthrax toxin and the usual ulcer where a black escar. And when we think about Bacillus cereus, then we usually think about uh, uh, um, uh, reheated rice. So those all, all those keywords on uh, on test. And then we have Listeria, which we usually think about uh, cold deli meats, but we're going to ignore all those. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. So there's more to the classification about, you know, our, our, our gram-positive bacilli, right? And what we're going to be focusing today is uh, we're going to be focusing on the one in bold, right? We're going to ignore everything else. We're going to talk a little bit about other corineiform bacteria. We're going to talk a bit about Arcanobacterium hemolyticum, rhodococci, skip Listeria, keep, uh, skip anthrax. We're going to talk about other bacillus species other than bacillus anthrax. We're going to talk a bit about erysopelothrix uh, as well. We're going to ignore Trifonorinema uh, uh, whiplay uh, as well. And then we're going to be talking about anaerobic gram-positive non-sporming bacilli like Cutibacterium, Lactobacillus, Arcanobacterium. And then we're going to uh, uh, talk about, about anaerobic gram-positive spore-forming bacilli. So let's get to it. So first of all, corinoform bacteria other than Corinobacterium diphtheria. So these are all of them. I'm not going to list all of them. There's really no reason for me to talk about all of them. I'm going to talk about the ones who we're usually going to be finding out, right? And of course, corinoform bacteria usually encompass several genera in which Corinobacterium is the most frequently encountered. They're usually irregularly shaped, non-forming, aerobic, gram-positive rods. So that's always that's always very important to know, right? Because once you get a call from the lab, you always have to think about, oh, what, what what's growing? What's growing? Is it really important or not? Usually, we found this uh, this organisms in soil and water, so they're usually in the environment, right? And they can be commensal colonizers of the skin and mucous membranes of humans and commensals in animals. So 
think about that when we're taking a good history of, a, of the patient, right? And now that we're, you know, we're, we're infectious disease specialists, we're seeing more particularly in patients who are chronically, uh, chronically hospitalized and immunocompromised, that's where we're going to see this uh, type of, of organisms. Again, this is a little bit of a recap of what we just talked about. Again, uh, it's usually in the environment, soil and water, and we're going to see this on patients who have been hospitalized and immunocompromised. So what kind of infections can we see with other, with other corinoform bacteria that are not corinobacterium diphtheria? We can see pharyngitis. We can see skin and soft tissue. We can, we can talk about natal valve endocarditis, uh, GU infections, prostatitis, periodontal infections, and then we're going to see a lot of nosocomial infections. And you're going to see those with patients who have uh, intravascular catheters, uh, native and prosthetic valve endocarditis, uh, device-related infections, patients who have uh, peritonitis and peritoneal dialysis patients, and post-op circle uh, inter interventions. And the most important thing around, around all this stuff that we're talking about is that all these nosocomial infections will continue to increase as we continue to uh, expose patients to extended stays in the ICU and multiple antibiotic uh, exposures, right? And the most common ones that we're going to be talking about are Corinobacterium jacium, Corinobacterium urolyticum, Corinobacterium amicolitum, and Corinobacterium striatum. So again, uh, microbiology of other corinoform bacteria, uh, again, they're usually found in polymicrobial infections and maybe contaminants in those kind of cultures, right? So what kind of, what's going to tell us, you know, what, when is this not really a, a, a contaminant? When you collect them from normally sterile sites, so if they call you and you're like, hmm, this is not supposed to be there, that's something to be worried about. When you have high colony counts, our presence with a strong leukocyte reaction, that's nothing to joke about. And when you have high colony counts of Corinobacterium urolyticum that are uh, recovered in the urine culture. So think about that when the when 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 they call you for, for, for the lab results. And we can divide them into lipophilic and no, non-lipophilic, and fermentative and non-fermentative. So lipophilic species, just a little bit of a, a tidbit there. Uh, again, it's uh, those that uh, uh, grow in tween 80, which is polyabsorbate 80. Uh, which is usually a, a, a surfactant that we find. And then the fermentative strains are the ones who produce acid from uh, certain sugars. So that's this is going to help us identify the organisms. So let's start with the non-lipophilic corinobacterium, right? And we're going to talk about corinobacterium ulcerans. So ulcerans, what can it cause? It can cause exudative pharyngitis and continuous ulcers, right? So you're going to have a, sim uh, 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 a similar illness, uh, similar to what we find with coronobacterium diphtheria, but we're not going to talk about that one. And the treatment usually is very similar to diphtheria, including the use of the antibiotics, just as erythromycin and diphtheria antitoxin. So if you see something, uh, pharyngitis, cutaneous ulcers, uh, C. ulcerans, now you know how to treat it. What if you find Corinobacterium pseudotuberculosis? What can it cause? So usually human disease is rare, uh, but it can manifest as a granulomatous lymphadenitis. And again, it's, history is very important. You're usually going to find it in farm workers and veterinarians. So always important. Where do you work? What kind of profession do you do? And again, treatment will be uh, pretty similar uh, to any other infection. Incision of the affected lymph node, right? 
and it's usually treated with beta-lactam, macrolides, tetracyclines. So these are two different uh, cases that I wanted to get, uh, bring to you guys. One is called a fatal case of nucleotide synositis, secondary to carinobacterian uh, ulcerans, right? And we were talking about, you know, how can it can just cause a, a, a disease similar to Cidifteria, uh, right? And in this case, it was actually a 77-year-old farmer who was having sputum production, fever, bloody nasal discharge, and it was actually found that he had coronobacterium ulcerans, right? And it was carrying the beta-phage for diphtheria toxin, right? So in this, in this case, um, unfortunately, the patient died from pulmonary failure associated to the production of very large viscous sputum that the patient had. And again, always important to know. Another one is uh, the one on your right, where it just talks about a, a case of coronobacterium ulcerans in Japan. Again, uh, uh, very similar. It was an asphyxiate death secondary to a pseudomembrane, uh, again, caused by the deteria toxin produced by coronabacterial ulcerans. So I didn't find any pictures of any any uh, any um, uh, infections with uh, coronabacterium paratuberculosis, but this is a beautiful picture of a cheap with cheesy glands with uh, coronabacterium paratuberculosis. So you don't really want that on on your uh, on yourself. So let's go, let's go to the big boys, Corinobacteria striatum. Again, it's a commonly isolated in a clinical microbiology lab, lab, and it's one of the most emergent pathogens, especially on patients with indwelling devices, patients with chronic pulmonary disease, and immunosuppression. Again, it's usually you'll find it as a skin and mucus uh, colonizer of the skin and mucus membranes of normal hosts and hospitalized patients. Uh, your picture on your right. You can uh, uh, see multiple cultures. The one that I want to focus is on the on the letter C, uh, which actually shows the uh, colony morphology of uh, Carinobacterium striatum. Uh, it's a 24-hour uh, growth and um, and blood uh, blood agar, right? And you can see that the colonies are large and white. And the picture on on D, you can actually see the typical uh, morphology of Carinobacterium. Uh, um, um, uh, bacteria, which usually has those famous Chinese letters that they teach us when we were uh, on med school. So what kind of infections can we see with striatum? Again, similar to what we talk about in uh, all this other corinobacterium, native and prosthetic valve endocarditis, uh, meningitis, uh, pulmonary nodules, necrosis fasciitis, uh, uh, septic arthritis, tubor ovarian abscess, and pyema, osteomyelitis, and can cause anything. And if there's anything that I want you guys to get from this presentation is, you know, the, you get the usual call, lab, or somebody, you know what, there's some carinobacterium straight and growing, what should we do? And this is where the, the main points of this uh, presentation is usually susceptible to vancomycin. Again, it's also susceptible to uh, other antimicrobials with broad spectrum uh, broad, gram, uh, broad gram positive activity, but usually resistant to penicillins, cipro, erythromycin, clindamycin, tetracyclines. And very important, resistance to daptomycin has been reported. And there's two cases that I want you to uh, 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 sh show you about rapid emergence of daptomycin resistance in clinical uh, isolates of coronavirus striatum. 
Uh, and again, both of them were patients with uh, left ventricular assist device. However, caution should be taken when you're treating patients with coronabacterium striatum. It is, if you're going to think about something and start it on something, think vancomycin. Avoid daptomycin. Uh, so, coronabacterium minutissima is usually a colonizer of human skin. So, you're going to see a, 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 a freaking... Um, uh, pattern to all, all, all this bacteria. They're usually colonizers of human skin and mostly of the intertriggers areas. And what can it cause? So this one uh, might be a board question. It's usually the causative agent of erythasma, right? Uh, diagnosis, again, is usually on clinical experience and symptoms. Uh, you can actually do cultures that is screenscaping, so I'm going to show you a picture soon. And this is kind of pathognomonic. Colonies also appear to have a coral red under uh, UV light. And usually a treatment is more, more, more simple, topical and oral antibiotics, but there have been reported cases of septicemia and endocarditis, again, in immunocompromised patients, and especially those with indwelling central venous catheters. So again, always take it into uh, 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 consideration. So here's a picture of wood lab examination uh, showing you, us the coral red of Corinobacterium minutissimum. Uh, and again, this is under wood lamp examination. Corinobacterium amicolatum, what can it cause? If you see this, it can cause nosocomial endocarditis, it can cause septic arthritis, it can cause natal valve endocarditis, uh, especially with patients with order left uh, atrial fistula. And again, uh, uh, amicolatum has usually been implicated with ear infections and orbital implant infections. And again, treatment, if there's something you wanna get out of this presentation, usually susceptible to vanco, uh, but difference to um, uh, striatum, usually sensitive to daptomycin and linesolate. And again, resistance to penicillin, cephalosporin, and macrolysin froloquinolones. Uh, so moving on, now we're gonna talk about the non-lipophilic, non-fermentative corinobacteria. And this one's, um, you know, I'm not gonna touch a little bit, but I want, you, I want you guys to have a little, you know, maybe something in the back of your heads uh, again, these are usually colonizers, again, of the human respiratory tract and ear canal, and they usually in frequent pathogens. And then we have affirmatans, auris, pseudodiphtericum, and propicum. Uh, again, colonizers of the human respiratory tract, but again, shout out, don't forget about them. So moving, moving forward, now we're going to uh, talk about the lipophilic corinobacterium. And here's where it gets interesting. We have uh, Corinobacterium jacium, right? It's usually a colonizer of the skin, especially in hospitalized patients. Again, you see a pattern. Uh, it's the most frequent isolated Corinobacterium in the acute care setting. We're going to show you a few cases. And again, it's the most important pathogen of the lipophilic group. Again, predisposing factors, again, all the same thing. Immunocompromised, malignancy, neutropenia, AIDS patient, other risk factors, just have something that is not supposed to be there, indwelling medical devices, prolonged hospital stays, broad spectrum antibiotic, and any impaired skin integrity. Treatment, again, don't forget, this is something that I want to embed in your brains, susceptible usually to vancomycin, which is the recommended treatment, usually resistant to penicillin, cephalosporins, aminoglycosides, and there is inducible resistance to macrolides. Here's two uh, different cases. Uh, 
And both of the cases, uh, uh, this coronavirus was resistant to all microbiological uh, bi agents except vancomycin. And we actually have on the right, it was actually done with one of our uh, previous, uh, previous fellows, Dr. Shyla Moore and Dr. Uh, John Green. Uh, so, you know, it's something that we do, we do see a lot, especially on those patients who are immuno, immunocompromised. And again, all this, all both of the patients have a high uh, incidence of pulmonary lesions. Uh, these are very interesting cases. Uh, if you have the opportunity uh, on the reference, please read them. Uh, coronabacterium urolyticum. So just like the name suggests, urea. So we're going to find it in urinary tract infections. It can colonize the skin in 25 to 30% of hospitalized patients. Uh, especially in the patients with abnormal anatomy. And in rare cases, it's been reported to cause peritonitis, endocarditis, pneumonia, septicemia, osteomyelitis, any soft tissue. And again, susceptibility, treatment of choice, vancomycin, which is usually remains susceptible. Resistance, again, beta-lactam, aminoglycoside, um, uh, Bactrim as well. And there's some variable uh, uh, susceptibility, fluoroquinolones, macrolides, and uh, tetracycline. So think uh, think about urolyticum, right? And it has the ability to adhere to uroepithelial uh, cells. And again, we usually see this uh, uh, pathogen, especially in uh, elderly, right, who are debilitated, immunocompromised, right? And again, going back, the most important risk factors for long hospitalization course, use of uh, uh, bla uh, bladder catheters, um, urinary tract procedures, have been in cause. And when you think about urolyticum, you think about encrusted cystitis. Uh, that's the key word for uh, urolyticum. Again, what happens is, uh, and, you know, it causes a chronic inflammation of the bladder, which actually causes crystal deposits um, uh, in, the, in the bladder. So here are two uh, 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 pictures, and I wanna focus, you know, you, you can clearly see the, the organisms on the left. Uh, but I want to focus on the picture on the right. And then we have a biopsy on the picture on the right, uh, letter A. We can actually see a biopsy of the bladder uh, before the patient got treated. And again, it shows a lot of necrotic tissue and infl uh, 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 inflammatory infiltration. Uh, picture number B actually shows the calcium deposits uh, uh, caused by the uh, uh, coronabacterium urolyticum. And then on picture number D, you can actually see how it looked after patient got <clears throat> a treatment. And this patient was actually treated with uh, uh, bancomy IV vancomycin, of course, and also got uh, uh, bladder irrigations. So here's uh, a case of encrusted cystitis by coronobacterium urolyticum, case report into the bladder lesions. And again, when you think about uh, coronobacterium urolyticum, think about encrusted uh, cystitis. So moving forward, we, we got out about the uh, uh, we, we, we got out of the of the um, coronobacterium and now we're going to talk about a little bit about arcanobacterium hemolyticum. So this is stuff that I want to, you know, uh, get into your brain uh, so you don't forget about it. So arcano means uh, mysterious in Latin. So we're going to talk about something mysterious, right? Again, it's usually it was previously known as Coronobacterium hemolyticum, so that's why that's why it's uh, it's kind of in there, and it's the well-recognized cause of pharyngitis in humans. It's usually indistinguishable, indistinguishable with uh, with a streptococcal pharyngitis, 
And again, it's usually, this is path and mnemonic, it's usually accompanied by an exanthem, uh, about 50% of, uh, of cases. However, it's also been reported to cause peritonsillar and pharyngeal abscess with uh, arcanobacterium hemolyticum and Lemire's disease with a combination of fusobacterium necrophorum and arcanobacterium hemolyticum. I'm going to show you the typical uh, uh, rash that comes in with our arcanobacterium. It's kind of a, a, a scarlatiniform in nature. And again, it's usually spares the face, palms, and soles. So keep that in your mind. I think in a board review, there was a question, uh, there was actually mentioned one case about it. Uh, most strains are usually penicillin susceptible. So now we're actually going into a little bit more of a sensible, uh, a susceptible penicillin area. Uh, it's been uh, 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 seen to have low MICs with erythromycin and acetromycin, and it's usually been resistance to trimetropine uh, um, uh, sulfamethoxazole and tetracycline. And again, just like any other infection, surgical management of wounds. It's always key, especially if there's uh, there's soft tissue abscesses. And this is a case of Lemire syndrome and septicemia with our Carnobacterium hemolyticum in a young immunocompetent patient. So uh, there was a 23-year-old man who was having acute pharyngeal tonsillitis, uh, and again he developed complicated Lemire's disease. Um, uh, three blood cultures uh, showing uh, uh, our and hemolyticum. So not that mysterious if you think about it. Moving forward, we're going to talk about the rhodococci. And again, it, it just a little bit of a, a background where it used to be. It belongs to the fam uh, family Nocardiaceae, order actinomyces, and it usually includes the Nocardia, Carinobacterium, Mycobacterium, and Gordonia species. And it's usually an intracellular gram-positive bacteria. And the one that we're going to focus on is Rhodococcus echi. Uh, but always keep in mind, if you get a call about a Rhodococci, always keep it in your, in, in your back pocket if you know you're, we're going to talk about how to treat it. And again, it's the most commonly isolated species of the Rhodococci. And again, pattern of this patient's immunocompromised host, especially with those with defective cell-mediated uh, immunity. So, uh, Rhodococcus equi, equi uh, formerly known as Corydobacterium equi. So, interestingly enough, we keep we keep uh, renaming them and making it a little bit more difficult for us, uh, but interesting for everybody else. And it's uh, there's been a, an increased um, infection, especially in patients with HIV and those with chemotherapy and an organ uh, uh, transplant. And again, infection both in animals and humans start to be acquired by inhalation or ingestion of the organism, but it also been reported to uh, caused by inoculation. Um, again, pneumonia, this is where you're going to see where is around 80% and mainly an immunocompromised host. And again, but culture has been seen sputum, bronchial washings, lung tissue. However, not only the lungs have been seen in blood, heart valve, CSF, brain, skin, wounds, bones, lymph nodes, peritoneal fluid, everywhere. Uh, treatment, usually susceptible uh, to vancomycin, macrolides, folloquinolones, rifampin, uh, carbapenems, and resistant to penicillins. So even if you have uh, susceptibility in vitro, it's not recommended that you use penicillin. So you kind of see a, a pattern, avoid any penicillins with most of these uh, uh, previously known corinobacterium. Um, so keep that in your back pocket. Here's a, a, a case of a 33-year-old uh, HIV patient uh, who uh, lived with cattle, horses, and presented to the uh, hospital with fever, dry cough, sweat, anorexia. 
He was not on his uh, antiretroviral, surprise, surprise, and he was found to have um, Rhodococcus equi in his lung aspirate. So going back 80% uh, uh, of infections of rhodococci uh, usually end up in the lung. So is there anything you want to take out of this? So let's talk about a coronabacterium again, uniformly susceptible to glycopeptides, such as vancomycin. And most strains are susceptible to daptomycin and lunesolid. But going back to striatum, try to avoid daptomycin. When we talk about our carinobacterium, again, most strains are penicillin susceptible with low MIC to erythromycin and uh, acitromycin. Uh, and there's also been uh, a susceptibility to clinda and doxy. And then with rhodococcus, it's usually susceptible to vanco. And of course, avoid penicillins. Um, Moving forward, we finished with our coronobacterium. We beat them to death. You know, we talk about immunocompromised uh, patients, how their skin colonizers, how they can be everywhere from valves to uh, uh, um, to lung to osteo to everything. Now we're going to talk about bacillus and other than bacillus antrax, right? We usually think about a little recap on, on bacillus antrax. We usually think about the cutaneous the inhalation, right? We think about the antrasantitoxin, but again, we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about those those today. So we're gonna talk about other than bacillus uh, antrax, and of course, they're usually gram positive, spore form, and bacilli. They're worldwide and usually again found in soil and water. And they're usually an uh, infrequent cause of infection in mammals, including humans, and it can be a normal flora of children and adults. And again, main mechanisms of bacillus, toxin production, and again, most of the uh, clinical manifestations are gonna be secondary to, to a toxin. And again, this is the point of this presentation. It can be challenges to distinguish between a through pathogen from a contaminant. Okay, so again, true bacteremia is the presence of multiple positive blood cultures. So always keep that in your back pocket. Uh, again, clinical manifestations of other bacillus species is going to be food poisoning. That's what we think about bacillus cereus, uh, right? But also lichenniformis, pomillus. And again, it can have, you can have the usual toxin, which could be diarrheal, emetic. Uh, again, usually between 24 hours of eating. And again, we think about meat, vegetables, sauces. And again, treatment, don't forget, no treatment for uh, food poisoning, right? You can just, uh, it's going to be, everything's going to be symptomatic, hydration, but no really no any uh, uh, antibiotics, right? So here's a list of all, all of the other bacillus. I, again, I can't, I can't spend the whole day talking about them, but this is a great picture uh, 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 that I, that, that, that I got, um, um, that I got of all the organisms are, again, and, and again, it can cause systemic infections, it can cause bacteremia, central nervous system infections, respiratory infections, eye infections, and again, soft skin and muscle infections. So again, going back, how are we gonna treat it? We get a uh, call for any of these uh, organisms in this in this picture, what, what are we gonna do about it? So treatment, when you think of bacillus cereus, uh, again, resistant to all uh, beta-lactams other than carbapenems, and again, susceptible to vancomycin, fluoroquinolones, and clindamycin. And if you get any other thing, as bacillus uh, species, it's usually susceptible to vancomycin, clindamycin, fluoroquinolones, and has variable uh, uh, 
uh, susceptibility to penicillins and cephalosporins. And again, like it's going to be key surgical and removal of any necrotic debris or any implanted devices. This is key to treating this infection. So going back, is there's anything you want to take out of this? Again, there's no specific treatment for food poisoning. Most bacillus species are usually susceptible to vancomycin, clindamycin, fulloquinolones, aminoglycosides, and cardiopenems, and avoid beta-lactams other than cardiopenems. We're going to talk about Erysopelotrix rosupisii. And when we think about this organism, I'm going to show you a picture of what we're going to think about. It's a cute little piggy. This is an American Yorkshire, which is a breed of domestic pig. And again, it's a version of the English Yorkshire. How do I know much about pigs? I actually took a course on, <laughs> on uh, pork production. So that was always interesting. And again, it's the major reservoir of this pathogen. So when we think about erysopelothrix, uh, we think about three major forms. We think about the erysopeloid, which is the localized cutaneous infection. We can think about diffuse cutaneous infection and then systemic or invasive infection. Again, it's usually a zoonosis. Uh, usually we think about swine, poultry, uh, sheep, and even fish. And again, infections in, in humans is usually due to occupational exposure. So if you're going to uh, working in a state uh, where you have a lot of farmers, this is something that you're going to keep in your back pocket, right? And again, portal entry, you know, they work with their hands. It's usually going to be through abrasions or puncture, uh, wounds of the skin. Uh, but infection may also happen with ingestion of undercooked pork or seafood. And again, the more the major reservoir is usually uh, uh, domestic uh, 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 swine. An important fa uh, fact might usually serve as a, a vector of the organism. So that's why it usually uh, persists in coops and pens of uh, all these animals. Uh, so again, the three more uh, clinical categories, Erysopeloid, uh, 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 categories, which is the localized skin lesion. We're gonna take a look at, at that. And the most uh, name that we usually think about this infection is usually Rosenbach disease. Uh, then we have diffuse cutaneous eruptions with systemic symptoms. And this is the thing that we want to get more worried about, systemic infection, especially in bacteremia. And what we've seen that 60% of patients with the, uh, uh, and 60% of patients with bacteremia ha have been associated with uh, endocarditis, especially in previous normal health bowels. So if you think if a patient with bacteremia, endocarditis, again, it's always important to get uh, the organism. Uh, here's a picture of Rosenbach disease. It's the most uh, uh, name. Um, and, um, and, and Great Britain, they call it swine erysipelas. Uh, in France, they call rouget du poc. And in Italy, it's called marrosino. So keep that in your mind if you're doing any travel or something. That's always interesting. Um, and again, diagnosis is usually isolation of the organism, either from a biopsy, specimen, blood, or any other sterile uh, 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 fluid. Uh, but again, it's difficult to isolate. Usually you have to, uh, if you really suspect this organism, you know, based on history, travel, uh, then you usually have to call the lab and, and, and also to tell them, you know, maybe you should keep the organ, uh, the sample for at least seven days so it, it kind of pop out. And again, there's no serological test. 
you know, this is something that you're probably going to see more in a veterinarian than anything else, but always keep it in your mind. This is a case uh, from the New Zealand Medical Journal, which actually mentioned uh, uh, bacteremia and immunocompromised hosts. In this case, it wasn't actually a pig, it was actually a uh, uh, crustacean. Um, uh, in this specific case, uh, and this patient, he actually did, made sure that, um, you know, he, he had a uh, bacteremia with this organism. They actually did an echo. Uh, he responded well to treatment. Uh, and he actually uh, completed a seven-day course of uh, oral amoxicillin, interesting enough. And, and I love how they put the picture of the culprit crustacean. I don't think that's really the one who caused it, but I think it was kind of funny. They actually put that in the, in the journal. Uh, treatment, usually susceptible to penicillin, cephalosporins, and uh, clindamycin, uh, imipenem, lunesylate, daptomycin, and cipro. And going back, it's usually resistant to vancomycin. So, so, so we were talking about all this coronobacterium and how they're usually susceptible to vancomycin. This, this one is on, on the other way around. Uh, but again, you know, if you get uh, a recephaloid, it's usually resolved without the absence of, uh, of therapy. But if you highly sus uh, suspect it on the patient, again, you make sure you call the lab and you know what, uh, maybe we should probably keep this uh, culture before you discard it. So moving forward, we're going to talk about anaerobic, anaerobic gram-positive non-spore forming bacilli. Uh, when we think about this, you usually think about gingival crevices, GI tract, vagina, and skin. And this is our uh, our main uh, culprit that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about cutie bacterium, uh, formerly known as propionobacterium. Uh, we're going to skip urobacterium. We're going to talk about bifidobacterium, lactobacillus. Usually we think about lactobacillus uh, as a probiotic, uh, but it can be a nobiotic. So. Um, keep that in your back pocket, Arcanobacterium, Atobium, uh, uh, and again, it's been isolated of intracranial abscesses, aspiration, uh, pneumonia, peritonitis, and of course, we know Cutibacterium, which is uh, the most common one, is current uh, Cutibacterium acnes. Um, but again, it's been seen in implanted prosthesis and central nervous system, especially those who are going to work in uh, uh, working with bone and joint infections, so you might see that the orthopedic surgeon might not remember, uh, might not think, oh, what, 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 what is uh, cutie bacterium? Is well, it used to be propiobacterium, so uh, that's you're always going to have one up, up them. So cutie bacterium uh, acne is usually the uh, can be found in bone and joint infections, especially in implants. Uh, we have granulosum, which has an ineffective endocarditis in natal, uh, native uh, mitral valve and prosthetic hips. So you're going to see hips, hip, hips, hip, hips. Uh, Cutibacterium avidum uh, can be uh, been reported in prosthetic hip joint infections. Uh, Propionobacterium nementis, uh, which is usually closely related to uh, acnes, has been isolated out of infected bone, like tibia and surrounding tissue. Um, and then we have uh, pseudopropionobacterium uh, propronicum, which resembles uh, actinomyces israeli. So you're going to have a, a, an actinomycotic lesion and abscesses with this kind of uh, pathogen. And what we, we usually see with uh, cutie bacterium uh, acnes is they usually see more in the upper extremities compared to the upper extremities. This kind of makes sense, right? Because the chest area has higher content of sebaceous gland, and this is where the um, the cutie bacterium is going to uh, dominate. And again, a, a fun fact, um, um, 
cutie bacteria in Western Nigeria misclassified as a bacillus species. And then it was later named into a Corynobacterium species. So you kind of see uh, uh, why I chose this topic, right? Because they all they all go back to, you know, uh, uh, into uh, name changes based on their characteristics. And you kind of see you kind of see a, a pattern with all these uh, uh, pathogens. Lactobacillus are you not usually about? We usually think about lactobacillus, and we think about beneficial. Uh, as a probiotic, but in, in immunocompromised patients, they're not really that much of a probiotic, especially those who are uh, on prolonged hospitalizations. Uh, again, we usually think about dental procedures uh, as the most uh, as a suggested potential predisposing factor in half of the cases of lactobacillus, especially in those with endocarditis. And again, it can cause intra-abdominal infections, bacteremias, endocarditis. Um, and again, it's all been found in meningitis, empyema, cholecystitis, peritonitis, pyelonephritis, everywhere. Another anaerobic gram-positive non-spore-forming non -spore ROS, we talk about bifidobacterium. We usually think about a dental uh, caries, so they're usually considered non-pathogenic. Uh, and I think we have some strains like uh, bifidobacterium brevi and lungum. We usually think about probiotics. And then we have a, to, uh, a topobium or alcinella, which actually has been uh, found in uh, infections of the female urinal, uh, sorry, uh, genital tract. And again, high concentrations, I usually think about uh, uh, bacterial vaginos vaginosis, uh, and it can be a, a marker for dysbiotic uh, uh, state. Uh, moreover, uh, we actually see there's also cases of uh, uterine endometritis and bacteremia connected to uh, uh, atobium. So keep that, keep that in your mind. Uh, so this is our two cases that I want to give you of, uh, bifidobacteria, um, of, uh, bifidobacteria. And the one on the left is a, a, a case of, uh, bifidobacterium longum bacteremia in an elderly and immunocompromised patient. Uh, and the one on the right, uh, it talks a little bit about the potential of uh, bifidobacterium to invade, especially in patients with uh, GI disease and impairment immunity. So they actually uh, uh, mentioned that at that time, uh, they only had 15 cases of bif bifidobacterium bacteremia that have been uh, reported in the literature. But a key component will be in those patients with uh, underlying GI disease, ulcerative colitis, and those with impaired immunity. Uh, is there anything we're going to take out of this uh, uh, um, um, uh, last organisms that we talk about? How to treat it? Lactobacilli, usually resistant to glycopeptides. It's usually seen very fre frequently. Cephalosporins are also consistently not affected, especially in lactobacillus uh, bacteremia. And it's also been uh, seen resistant with clindamycin. So when we think about all these organisms we just, talk, we just talk about, we usually think about, oh, let's add some antimicrobial agent that are going to have uh, the most anaerobic gram-positive uh, uh, coverage, which is going to be the penicillins and carbapenems. Uh, propionobacterium or cutibacterium in this case, usually susceptible to beta-lactams, so such first-generation cephalosporins, even penicillin G. Uh, but again, avoid clindamycin and flagell. Interesting enough, uh, we usually think about anaerobic coverage and we'll like, we usually go to flagell. Uh, but resistance has also been seen, especially with those patients with, uh, with joints. And then bifidobacterium, again, you see a pattern over here, usually susceptible to beta-lactans. However, resistant to flagell and cipro is common. 
So if you, you get one of those pesky gram-positive non-sporming forming rods, avoid those beta uh, those uh, flagell and cipro, right? Until you know what 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 what's go what's uh, growing. So now we move from the uh, non-sporing forming. Now we're going to talk about the spore forming. And usually we think about clostridia, which is our, usually our main pathogen around this group. And we usually think about clostridia, wounds, abscesses, and blood. And the most common isolates is clostridia perfringens, septicum, uh, rhamnosum, novi, sordelli, histolyticum, phallax, bifermedens, and inoculum. And of course, we usually think about C. diff, but we're going to talk about that one. Uh, we're going to ignore the ones that are not in bold. We're going to talk about other infections that the other clostridia can cause, like bacteremias, intradominal infections, biliary tract infections, female genital uh, tract infections, and pleuropulmonary infections. So uh, clostridium uh, species, as you guys well know, usually uh, in nature, we find it in uh, soils and sediment all around the world. 70% of humans are colonized with uh, clostridia. And it's part of the vaginal uh, microbiome, especially in a healthy human who can be a little bit transient. And, and what you're going to see is that the, the main mechanism of all this troublesome uh, bugs, again, is their great diversity in toxins uh, and greater than any other uh, genera of bacteria that have neurotoxins, pteroptoxins, proteases, lipases, DNases, neuromididases. It has everything. And again, going back, it can be normal or intestinal or magical uh, or vaginal uh, microbiome. Again, usually uh, acquired by traumatic injury, especially those with contaminated soil, sanitary water, fecal material. Um, and again, intoxication can occur for either uh, response to endogenous toxin productions like C. diff and ingestion of performed toxins like C. botulism, but we don't care about those right now. Uh, bacteremia. The clostridia are second only to bacteroides. Usually we think bacteroides, bacteroides among anaerobes isolated from uh, uh, blood cultures. You know, it's second only. It's about 1% of all, of all positive uh, uh, cultures for something to keep, keep in mind, right? So usually we think about bacteroides, but it usually followed by clostridium species. And of the clostridium species, the ones that we usually found isolated are perfringens, septicum, and difficile. And again, treatment should be tr pro uh, prompt, especially because of all those toxin production. Uh, so that's why you always go directly if you need surgery and a patient needs to go for surgery, uh, especially on those patients who have abdominal infections. Um, and again, clostridia usually uh, often isolated from perlin material, uh, along with other obligate anaerobes and facultative species. Uh, biliary tract infections. Uh, Clostridia has been isolating over 20% of disease of gallbladder uh, and can be a, a, a representative of contamination of the biliary tract uh, by uh, normal intestinal bacteria. And perfringence usually accounts around 50% of cases. And when we think about perfringence, we, we usually think about gas grain green, especially of the abdominal wall, especially as a complication of gallbladder surgery, which of course needs emergent surgical in intervention and antibiotics directed to both obligate anaerobes, uh, including clostridia and facultative uh, enteric uh, organisms. So here's a few cases uh, of, of other clostridia 
uh, infection. Uh, the the uh, first case on the right is a case of a, a serious septicum. Uh, and then um, in this case, uh, they actually do recommend uh, something that you're going to see with uh, uh, with this um, uh, with Clostridium septicum. In this case, it was actually an endophthalmitis, which they actually uh, ended up filing uh, um, an occult um, GI malignancy. You're going to see a, a, a kind of pattern mnemonic, especially with Clostridium septicum, the presence of a, a, a GI malignancy. Uh, the case on the uh, uh, on the middle uh, it shows two different cases of Clostridium septicum and and, and they both have perforations uh, secondary to a malignancy and the one had uh, one in the cecum and the other one in the rectum and uh, last but not least the one on the right actually talks about a Clostridium perfringens bacteremia which going back to what we were talking about about the gallbladder and uh, as being one of the source. So you think of Clostridium perfringens bacteremia, you usually think think about gallbladder. Uh, in this case, the patient had absence of gallbladder stones. So that was that was interesting. Uh, going back to Clostridia again, it can cause uh, female genital tract infections. It can be 10% of uh, normal vaginal flora. But again, it can uh, present as bacterial vaginosis up to 20%, especially with that dysbiosis that we, we talk a little bit about it. And it's been uh, associated with postpartum and post-abortion infections, uh, especially with considered perfringence and sordelli. So keep that in your mind and uh, localized chorionionitis uh, infection. Uh, and then we have uh, pleuropleural infections. You can have 10% of uh, anaerobic pulmonary infections can be associated with uh, uh, Clostridium perfringens as, as the main culprit. Uh, and you think about uh, or, uh, source, we're going to think about mouth and we're going to think about aspirating uh, um, uh, stomach content. So, is there anything you want to take out of this press, uh, uh, of this uh, uh, um, la last few uh, slides that we talk about? Uh, usually, antimicrobial agents against uh, medical important gram-positive anaerobic bacilli. We think about carbapenems, flagell, but remember, don't forget, usually inactive against cutie bacterium species. So don't think about, oh yeah, uh, uh, we, we need to, to start flagell. Think about, you know, what is resistant, what is not, but usually think about beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor co combination. It has variable sensitivities, uh, penicillin, especially in uh, most clostridium strains. Uh, and then we also have separate and avoid amino glycosides, avoid at all costs uh, monobactams, uh, of course, and, and avoid um, a bactrim. So finishing up, there are more than what we think about. This is the point of this uh, presentation. Hopefully today we got to refresh a few organisms that usually catch us off, uh, off guard that we usually don't think about. And in the future, as we continue to have, you know, use more and more antibiotics and all these patients are immunocompromised, we will see these pathogens. And it's always important to keep in mind you know what can they cause, and we we saw we saw a pattern with uh, Coronobacterium because cause anything, um, and if you find them, you know how to treatment uh, how to treat it, or at least you have an idea of where you're going to start the patient on to properly treat it and and actually uh, 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 get the patient better.
Uh, so I'll leave you all guys with this. Uh, hopefully I'll get to uh, show it to you guys. Let's see if I can. Uh, it kind of uh, it froze. Let's see if I can get it. Okay, so love all your microorganisms the same. Uh, oh, it's not working. Oh, it, it was a pic. There we go. So love them all the same. All your viruses, grand negatives. It should be a grand positive popping in. Some fungi, arthropod-born infections, uh, and of course your grand uh, positive bacilli. So love them all the same. Don't ignore them. Thank you so much. Here are all my references of all the cases. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the presentation. Thank you.